Our second message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis, Curtis Whiteley. <clears throat> it is entitled, The Yoke of Jesus. Well, good afternoon. It's great to see everyone here on this uh, wonderful Sabbath day. And I hope I'm going to echo the sentiments that were... Uh, given to us a little bit earlier by both Steve and Matthew. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I know that I did. Uh, and it's, it, it's definitely something that is an amazing thing. Uh, when we look at the blessings that God has given us, uh, not just in our own personal lives, but you know, living in this country, in the United States of America. Uh, I happen to be able to be in the presence of someone at Thanksgiving time uh, that uh, had quite a story. And it really, I think, uh, this individual was a Holocaust survivor, actually. And uh, he, he told us a little bit of his story at Thanksgiving and just the different things that he went, went through and being from France and surviving uh, as a little young child, uh, you know, the Nazi regime that came in and took over and occupied France. And quite literally, this individual as a six or seven year, year old boy uh, was with his family and had to seek refuge in Switzerland. And it wasn't something that was just as easy as getting into a vehicle or to a plane or to a, onto a train to get there. There were a lot of different things uh, that had to happen. And so it really was sobering to hear this story. And it just reminded me of the blessings that many of us, because I think back uh, about times from, you know, my grandfather telling me stories and things that he went through back just, you know, 70, 80 years ago. And just, uh, you know, being only 34 years of age, you know, all of us go through different things in life. But uh, there's definitely a lot to be thankful for, especially when you hear about the things that people had to go through uh, to make this country what it is today. And so I think that everyone would agree with me that we're thankful to God uh, for the many blessings, not just on on Thanksgiving once a year, but all the time. And so today, as you see on the screen, the title of my message is The Yoke of Jesus. And I, last time I spoke, just a few weeks ago, I concluded my message, and I was talking about Jesus and the broken, and talking about the suffering that goes on in this world. And I concluded that message by just reading this string of passages in Matthew, the 11th chapter, verses 25 through 30. And so today I was inspired to bring a message based upon that text. And we're going to get into some things that Jesus has to say, but in order to understand this string of passages, this part of Scripture, this part of Matthew's Gospel, we've got to unpack a few things that are going on in the overall chapter of chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel. And so if we just kind of give a brief overview, if we look at the very beginning passage all the way through, because Matthew 25, uh, 11, verses 25 through 30 is the very last verses of this chapter, there are some things that are going on. And one of the first things that takes place in this chapter is that uh, John the Baptist's disciples, people who are followers of John the Baptist, come to Jesus and ask Jesus about his identity. John at this time was in prison, so he decided to send a few of his individuals that followed him, his disciples, to ask Jesus, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? 
That's in verse 3 of chapter 11. But what's interesting is, is how Jesus answers this. He doesn't just say, yes, I'm the one that you are looking for. Yes, I am he in whom you are speaking of. But he, and he does this oftentimes. Jesus is not one that oftentimes directly answers a question. But he presents John's disciples with some things that are occurring, some facts. And those facts are things like, you know, uh, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. He's given evidences. The dead are risen, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And so instead of just telling John's disciples that, yes, I'm the one that you're looking for, he presents things, actions, activities that have taken place that prove, that demonstrate, you be the judge. These things have happened. So you tell me, based upon this. You know, answer your own question by using the evidence, by what you see. And so from here, Matthew's gospel kind of changes and turns a corner. It starts to get into some judgment, I guess you could say. Because from here, Jesus begins teaching around all the cities of Galilee, and there are some interesting similarities that are taking place while he does this to the Old Testament prophets. You know, we know from the Old Testament, and even what Jesus says in the Gospels, that oftentimes the prophet's message is rejected. And the same thing could be said for Jesus. So Jesus is going around, he's preaching in these cities of Galilee, up there in, in, in Galilee, which is obviously north of Judea, where Jesus will eventually land when he's crucified there in Jerusalem. And Jesus' contemporaries, they're not accepting his message. And in fact, not only are they not accepting his message, no matter what style is being preached to them, they're rejecting it. For example, John the Baptist comes on the scene, we could say that that is kind of the beginning as we see that Jesus will eventually come and tell us that he is the one that is you know, set to prepare the way of the Lord. He's that Elijah that prepares the coming Messiah. And so Jesus brings out this interesting, I guess you could say, double rejection among the people of Israel of Jesus' day. Because John the Baptist, what does he do? He comes preaching, he's living in the wilderness, he's... He's preaching repentance. He's eating locusts and honey. And he's, you know, obviously that's a lifestyle that is uh, denying oneself many pleasures. And what do they say? They say, that man must have a demon. But see, Jesus comes along and his preaching, his style, his lifestyle is a little bit different because he's not doing that. Jesus actually says that Jesus himself, he's come. And he's eating, and he's drinking, and he's going around with sinners. And they say he's a wine-bibber who eats and drinks with sinners, something that many people in Jesus' day would find inappropriate. And so Jesus is basically likening this generation, because that's what he does. He gives this overview of what takes place, and Jesus gives this sobering analogy of what this generation is like that he is preaching to. And he actually lists three to four different cities, historical cities, that have historically been known for idolatry, uh, for immorality, and things like that. And he essentially says that if these cities, if these cities, the ones, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Tyre and Sidon, Saddam, uh, Tyre and Sidon, and then Saddam, 
all historically pagan, all historically known for their debauchery, for their immorality, if these cities would have heard and seen the works of Jesus, they would have repented. And so Jesus is giving a very sobering uh, picture. This, would have, this, this was a, a picture of judgment based upon the activity that he has presented, his own countrymen, his fellow Jewish people, the ones that knew the law, the ones that had studied and grew up hearing about the heritage of Israel, the covenant, Moses, Abraham, all of that story, and that were looking for a Messiah, and Jesus is basically presenting them with judgment because even though the Messiah was right in front of their face, they were rejecting him. And so we come to the very last part of Matthew. That kind of sets up the context of what we're dealing with here. And in Matthew, the 11th chapter, verse 25 through 30, Jesus says this, At that time, Jesus answered and said, a little bit of a prayer, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so with this message today, I have three really simple points. They're simply put, but they're not necessarily simply lived out. And based upon this text, my first point for us is that we need to avoid vain pride and submit to our need for God. You know, Jesus' prayer, which he starts off in this string of passages here, it's a prayer to God. It reveals many things about Jesus himself, but also about the God in which we worship. Jesus' prayer reveals both God's grace and God's mercy. Let's just think about what Jesus calls him, how he refers to him, Lord of heaven and earth. I think it's very easy for us to get, forget that. The God that we worship is not, you know, the God of America. It's not the God of Africa, the God of Europe. It's the God of all this entire universe. And so by saying that, we see that we worship the God that is completely sovereign over all things that exist. And so that means that God's not just over this universe, not just over this, this earth, but obviously us. And the fact that he has revealed anything to us is an act of mercy, is an act of grace. Because God doesn't, does, doesn't owe us anything, anything at all. Jesus' prayer here in this first string of passages also reveals God's judgment. And that judgment that he has pronounced to those people who have rejected his message. Jesus reveals that God has hidden his truths from what he calls the self-proclaimed wise and given them to the humble and open-minded. That right there is very sobering. Because it's interesting because this word wise and prudent, this, this little phrase, doesn't necessarily mean that people who are intelligent, 
people that are smart, people that are well-versed or educated, that they can't receive the truths of God. But it's a little bit of a sarcastic remark that Jesus gives, and he says, in light of what's taking place before him during this time that he is preaching in these areas of Galilee. Specifically, one of my most favorite passages in all of the Bible is in Proverbs, the third chapter, verses 5 through 3, or 5 through 7. And I think many of us have read this, and we, you know, we hold on dear to it. But we know that the, the Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 7, says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. And in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes, Fear the Lord and depart from evil. This is such a universal principle right here. Something that we see over and over that humanity oftentimes fails to accomplish. But in Jesus' day, in this context, there's a little bit of something that's interesting. You see, the wise and prudent that Jesus seems to be talking about is his own people, the people who are rejecting his message. There's an issue that's going on here and it's one of pride. The Jews of Jesus' day, they had this unhealthy sense of self-reliance and self-understanding. You know, Jesus opened up, or rather Matthew opened up, talking about John the Baptist's disciples coming to Jesus and asking him about Jesus' identity. But at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, the first parts where we see John the Baptist and Matthew the third chapter, we see an interesting little event take place. And I think that oftentimes it's, it's easy to kind of just go past it and not see some things that are going on there. And that is, it gives us a little bit of a, a, an insight to maybe the way that some of these religious leaders that Jesus was dealing with would eventually be dealing with a little bit later. Matthew, the third chapter, verse 7 through 10, we know that John the Baptist is out preaching this this teaching of repentance. And verse 7, Matthew tells us, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, that's John that, that Matthew's talking about, coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so this little story, this little event is very telling. Because one of the things that John the Baptist says, Don't think to say in your heart we have Abraham as our father as if he was anticipating that's the way that they would be thinking. John's over here talking about repentance. Everyone needs to repent. Everyone is under this you know, condemnation or, or under this, this uh, guiltiness of being sinful. But he's looking at his countrymen and he's anticipating you know, the leaders. These are some Sadducees and some Pharisees. These religious leaders coming to him. And he's anticipating their attitude. Well, we're Israel. We're the chosen people. We're the generation that, if it, you know, we have to be here. I mean, the, the, the scriptures, the prophecies are obviously about us. We kind of have this in the bag, so to speak. 
And so John's telling them, look, quit relying on your heritage. Quit relying upon, you know, because you're a part of the covenant people. God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. You're not safe like you think you are. And so that's the attitude that we see that is in the religious leaders, and it tends to be something that trickles down even to the common people. And so the consequence of this self-sufficient attitude resulted in God passing over many in Jesus' day in judgment and revealing those things, those precepts, those things that many people wanted to know about for many, many years, these, these, you know, how God's plan was going to work to what Jesus calls babes. And I think that in the world that we live in today, I think that this same attitude can trickle down to us. Let's just think about that. You know, we live in 2018. We have more technology than any of us could probably ever utilize. We have lots of discoveries about how different things work scientifically. It's very easy, you know, with the advancements we have in science, advancements that we have in technology and medicine. It's easy, and we see this play out for humanity to kind of feel like we're self-sufficient. You know, we don't need God. We don't need the Bible. You know, we certainly don't need this Jesus and this idea that we need to somehow repent and, and, and admit that we are wrong or we don't have it all figured out and that, we, that we're sinful and that there is this, this pure, holy creator that d- demands for us, you know, to, to be pure and holy as well. And the only way to get through that and get to that point is through Jesus Christ. So it's definitely easy, I think, for us to see this same attitude trickled down to us in the modern age. In Jesus' day, though, I think one of the biggest stumbling blocks, and I think that we can relate to this religiously, the biggest stumbling blocks to the people that Jesus was preaching to and what made them put up a barrier immediately was that accepting Jesus' message meant automatically that they would have to admit several things. One of them, that they were wrong in their understanding about how they thought the Messiah should come. Because Jesus and his coming and the way it played out was not the traditional way that the Jewish leaders expected the Messiah to come. Secondly, by accepting Jesus' message, they would have to realize about their sinfulness and that they themselves, at a righteous level, were in need of a Savior. In their minds, they had the righteousness down. They didn't need help with righteousness. They just needed help with physical redemption, physical uh, saving, driving out the Romans, establishing the sovereign and independent kingdom of Israel back in Jerusalem, in the land of Israel, establishing the kingdom, or not the kingdom, but the temple and the priesthood and making that holy like it used to be, where you you don't have Gentiles coming in and coming around. And so, that's what they would have to do by admitting that Jesus was the actual Messiah. And it just seems to be a pill that was just too much to swallow. Now, I also want to mention something else. Because I I want to be really clear about this. As history has unfolded, it's an unfortunate thing. Uh, Passages such as this one, uh, among many others, have been used to fuel an anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic ideology. 
I don't think in any way, shape, or form that that is Jesus' intention, and I don't think anyone here would think that as well. Uh, and it certainly shows us, in the, you know, as we read through the New Testament, that's you know not something that is of God. Of course, you know that's something that is an evil ideology and something that needs to be rejected. In fact, what we need to realize is is that this is not a Jewish problem, an Israeli problem, an Israelite problem. This is a human problem. All human beings. This is a, a problem of the human condition. All humans, all, are susceptible to this pride and this prideful, self-reliant attitude that we see prevalent in the people that Jesus is preaching to. It's not based upon a race, a culture, an ethnicity, but it's all people. It just so happens to be in this situation we see the people that Jesus is talking to are Jewish, his people, and they are embodying an attitude, a spirit of pride that we have seen many different religious groups and many different organizations exhibit. So I want us to be very, very clear on that. We even see throughout church history how prevalent this attitude is, this self-sufficient. You know, we have it all down. Even in our own tradition, we, we have it all figured out. You know, we, we're not going to change based upon something that's, you know, or in other words, we, we're not going to modify or be willing to modify anything, even if we have maybe further knowledge that is given to us. And that maybe we have a specific way that we view something, and over time maybe we come to realize that maybe that's not really something that's backed by the biblical text. And of course, unfortunately, oftentimes, this is something that's carried out not in the big doctrines, because those are pretty, pretty plain, but it's in the small doctrines that are not, not, not essential. I mean, I'm talking about things like prophecy. I mean, the ink is already dried on the chart. We can't change it, you know. Those types of mentalities is what I'm speaking about, okay? I want us to go to Matthew, the 18th chapter, to end this little point here. Matthew, the 18th chapter. Because not only is it something that's prevalent even in our own church tradition, church history throughout the ages, all different examples that we can look at throughout humanity, it's even prevalent among Jesus' own disciples. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5 says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So we see that this is a problem that's even prevalent among Jesus' own disciples. The twelve apostles that we look to later that, you know, many of which write parts of the New Testament. We see that this is a problem. Jesus' own disciples had a problem with pride. Had a problem with pride. Now the context here is clear, but what's interesting is is how Jesus uses uh, the idea of children to correct the disciples of this attitude. And that is, of course, because of the child's humility. I mean, that's where he's getting at. 
this was something that was shocking probably to many people that were listening to Jesus. Uh, because in the ancient Near East, children were regarded as inferior to adults. And so Jesus is looking at, you know, one of the most vulnerable parts and sectors of society, little children, you know, babes, kind of like Jesus talked about earlier in Matthew's Gospel. There's a little interesting quote that I want to kind of give you guys from the InterVarsity background commentary on this passage. It says, the most powerless members of society were little children. In Jewish culture, children were loved, not despised, but the point is that they had no status apart from that love. And no power or privilege apart from what they received as total dependence on their parents. And we know as little children, you know, they're, they don't have it all figured out. It's interesting how, you know, attitudes kind of, I guess you could say that the progression, little babes, little children, they're humble. They don't know, they don't, you know, they don't act like they know everything. Then they get in the adolescent age again and they know everything, right? And then they hit the 20s. About 25, 26, of course, this, there's no general rule. They start realizing, maybe I don't know everything. And the older you get, you kind of start realizing that you don't know quite as much as that you think you know. But as babes, as little children, you know, that's coming to God with a humble heart. Realization. Children realize that they're dependent upon their parents. They look to their parents because their parents provide everything for them. And that is the attitude that God expects of us. My second point is come to Christ, for he gives the eternal rest. Let's read verse 28 one more time of Matthew, the 11th chapter. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. It's an interesting little passage there. Because Jesus right here is extending the calls to those who are exhausted. Those aren't just exhausted physically, but those who are exhausted spiritually. And you know there's a lot of people in this world that are exhausted emotionally. They're exhausted spiritually. They don't know where to turn. They don't have necessarily an anchor, a foundation to build upon. And Jesus is extending this call. As we have seen from this context of Scripture, though, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, there's something really interesting. Because many people, they look to those religious leaders. They look to them as being their guides to how they're supposed to live, to how they're supposed to understand the Scriptures. And Jesus tells us in Matthew, the 23rd chapter, verse 4, if you just read that, and we're not going to turn there, he talks about these leaders placing heavy burdens on people that the scribes and Pharisees bind on the shoulders of men while they themselves don't even lift a finger. These extra external requirements that we see that Jesus' contemporaries placed upon the people of their day. And we can think about this in terms of the law. Obviously, God's law is there. But we know that the history is that they have all these different traditions that surround the law. And oftentimes, these traditions, they were almost meant to be like a badge. Like, this is what I do. You know, look at me fasting. Look how often I fast. You know, I'm, I'm so, so, much, so glad that I'm not like that person over there, that sinner. There was a boastfulness that went with this. But see, here's the problem. 
anytime we begin to rely on ourselves for spiritual righteousness or spiritual rest, we do two things. Number one, we deny the holiness of God. We deny the holiness of God. Secondly, we set ourselves up to become burdened simply because we inevitably will fail. We're never going to be able to live up to the righteousness that God requires of us on our own. Self-reliant. That's the gospel message right there. What we do, or what will we do to make up for this? Now, if we recall ancient Israel, if we can remember one of God's primary desire for them was that they would trust in him. That's what God wanted Israel to do, to trust in him. To look to him, to not look backwards as so often they do. Trust will result in obedience and reliance on God for our deliverance. Trust will result in obedience and reliance on him, on God, for our deliverance. When Israel finally entered to the promised land, we see that for a little while, they did pretty well. But over time, they start to slowly slip away. They start to do things like, you know, look to false gods for safety. Look to themselves for safety. They start entering into alliances with foreign nations, thinking that somehow that would protect them from the big bad kingdoms all around them. They started to want things like other nations did. We can look at the example of Saul. They look to Saul. They want a, uh, they, they want a king like everyone else. They wanted to have safety in terms of the way that humans felt safe. They wanted to think carnally about what would make them safe instead of thinking spiritually for what would make them safe. And then we get to the New Testament. And we see the people of Israel, the Jews that Jesus is living among, you know, they've put down the idolatry. They've taken the law seriously. But there's still this one little problem. And that problem is there's still this issue of relying on themselves. You see, they, they weren't committing adultery, idolatry anymore in the traditional way that we think of idolatry. You know, we think of actually making something physical and bowing down to it. We see the ancient Israelites, they kind of, you know, try to adopt some of the customs of the people around them. They're not doing that. But they're replacing what they usually use as the center of their idolatry with themselves. What do they do? They start relying on the law to the point where they say, well, this isn't enough. We need to add to it. We need to make sure that we're really righteous. We need to make sure that we're putting this fence around it. And maybe some people had a good heart about it. Maybe that they were genuinely just trying to protect themselves and make sure that they didn't do certain things. I'm not saying that all of it was bad per se. But after a while, what seems to be happening is, is they start really thinking of themselves as being super righteous. And of course, what goes along with that, they start believing in a way, maybe subconsciously, that they're kind of reliant on themselves. That they're, you know, they have it all figured out. And what results is, of course, is that they have self-proclaimed wisdom to the point where when something comes right in front of them and takes place, such as the miracles of Jesus, they reject it. That's not the way that I saw things coming, and I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty learned in the scriptures. I, we kind of know how the Messiah is going to come, and you're not it. You don't fit the bill. You're not, you know, we didn't write the chart 
to fit you. There's no place in our chart for you. And so they start rejecting things that are right in front of their eyes. And Jesus promises this rest, this rest that He would bring to us, because we know that the ancient Israelites, that's what they were promised, rest. This rest is twofold and refers to the forgiveness of sins and the guilt of our shortcomings and the future promise of full redemption in the kingdom of God. Again, I also think it's important for us to reiterate because I think it's easy to do as humans to look back and say, oh, I mean, we have so many different examples that we read this and we can kind of laugh at them. Oh, silly Saul. Oh, silly Abraham. Oh, David, how in the world could you do that? Adultery? That's crazy. I would never do that. Look what everything you had. Look, look all the things you had. Solomon, you're, we would never do that, right? We would never fall into those traps. Well, so it's interesting. Sometimes we obviously don't think that consciously. But I think that sometimes we, you know, as human beings, we can kind of have that little bit of that attitude. But see, in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, we know that Paul tells us that these things, talking about the things and the experiences of Israel, they were written down for our admonition and as examples of things that we should not follow after. So I think that that just goes to show that if Paul provides that for us, as examples of things that we shouldn't follow after, it is actually something that's possible for us even today to fall back into. Of course, not in the same manner as them, obviously, but thinking about our own calling, what God has brought us through. And so how easy it is sometimes that even when we see things, even though we have God's spirit, there's still a carnal side. Let's just think about this. The ancient Israelites were in Egypt. And they were enslaved by one of the most powerful kingdoms of that time. They had burdens laid upon them that we could probably not even imagine. And even though that that was the case, they leave Egypt by the hand of God. And eventually, when things get hard, despite the conditions that they probably had to live through, when things got hard in the wilderness and they didn't know completely what was going on, instead of just continuing to trust in God, the one who had performed miracles and wonders in their sight, said this in Numbers of 14 chapters. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? They're sitting here all worried about these potential things happening and it's almost like they completely forgot what God had done for them to bring them to this point. And the very last passage that I want to read here in verse 4, Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. They turned back to Egypt. They forgot. Obviously, I mean, common sense tells us that they, you know, obviously lacked faith, they didn't trust in God, they turned back to Egypt. In our hearts, can we turn back to Egypt sometimes? You know, life gets hard, you know, and, and sometimes I think it can come in subtle, subtle ways. It doesn't have to be because things are hard and that we start trying to figure out, well, I'm not really comfortable with dealing with this. I want to go and, and I'm going to turn back to the mechanism that I used to use to get through problems. Of course, everyone has different experiences. Whatever mechanism that might be, 
Maybe it's just temptation sometimes that makes us feel like, you know, this is just too hard. Maybe someone was a drug addict or an alcoholic or a substance abuser of some sort or have other vices that they abused and things got hard, they became tempted and what they do, they turn back to those things. How about thinking of it from another angle? How about success? I think sometimes we think of, sometimes we can slip back and turn back to Egypt just because things are hard. I think sometimes it's equally as easy to turn back to Egypt, I'm talking metaphorically obviously, when we have success. You know, you get a job promotion. You climb the ladder. You become really successful at whatever you're doing. And you start thinking, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at what I do. You know, I, I built this. You know, and, and instead of, you know, thinking, man, wow, as Steve brought out in the, the, the first message, God has really blessed me. I think we have examples of that, of people of God in the Bible, that sometimes success can actually bring about a little bit of a, a pride in us. And sometimes maybe we kind of slip up and we kind of maybe take a back, back step. You know, sometimes it's when things are good. It's when the bounty comes, as Steve talked about, whenever we forget about the Egypt that God has brought us out of. Something for us to think about as we look towards this rest that Jesus has promised us. This rest, as Steve brought out just in the first message, in that first beatitude, this rest is embodied in that first beatitude. Blessed is the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Those who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they are completely dependent upon God, and have to trust in Christ and His saving blood, those are the individuals. Those are, that's what God wants. That's what makes us truly someone who follows Christ, a true Christian and a true heir to the kingdom. My last point, which is based upon verses 29 through 30. Let's just go ahead and read verses 29 through 30 again. After Jesus tells us to take his rest, verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you. It's what the basis of this message is entitled. The yoke of Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, we typically don't use that term yoke in our day and age. It's a term that, you know, in Jesus' day. Uh, Jesus, right here, he's extending not only a call to come to him. That he's going to give people rest. But the calls also intended for them to realize that they are exchanging yokes. Now the word yoke is a common term in Jesus' day that's usually used on the burden that's placed upon animals for pulling things, for labor. It's an animal, to, you know, it's, it's, it's a term that, we're gonna, that, that is used to talk about the yoke that's placed upon, the burden, the labor that's going to be placed upon an animal. And to really understand this, I think that we have to kind of understand a little bit of the background because in these days obviously they didn't have vehicles they didn't have cars they didn't have trains planes automobiles might as well say them all okay all right it, it is thanksgiving just a few days ago if you ever seen that movie it's about getting home from thanksgiving but uh in these days they didn't have motorized vehicles they didn't have that type of transportation and obviously they had to use animals and every time i move my arm i think that you can hear a little bit of 
uh, commotion in my microphone. I apologize. So one of the primary animals they would use would be oxen. And so one of the ways that they would train oxen, whether, whatever it was that they were moving, they would have these different devices that they would lay on the oxen to be able to transport things. One of the ways that you would train an oxen, like a younger one, is that you would hook them up to an older one. And so the older oxen is teaching the younger oxen, basically, how to do this. I mean, after many, 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 uh, I apologize. Hopefully that works. We're almost done, so <laughs> if not, just bear with me. Uh, anyways, one of the ways that they would train these oxen would be to hook them up to an older one. And over time, the younger oxen would learn the ways of how they do these things, the gestures of the human beings that were controlling them and leading them, and things like that. And so Jesus is kind of, in a way, likening the religious leaders of his day to like the older oxen and the common people to the younger oxen. But here's the problem. The younger oxen were doing all of the work. They were bearing the complete brunt of the burden. As Jesus many times is bringing out, they're heavy laden. They've been placed upon them all of these burdens. Not just do this, do that, do this, do that. But it's almost like they had to like look up to par. They had to make sure that you know, people visibly would see them and... Their lifestyle would, you know, they, they didn't do this, they didn't do that. On these days, they would do these things. They were overburdened. And in their minds, the way that they were being taught, like, that's how you were righteous. That's how you got closer to God. But Jesus is saying, with me, you're exchanging yokes. With Jesus, it's easier, in a way, I mean, we could actually make the, the argument that following Jesus in the truest sense of the word it's much more difficult than that of following the Sadducees and Pharisees during this day, as Jesus brings out in this very Gospel of Matthew, because Jesus, he's not just concerned with the physical. He wants you to be intent, heart-wise, you know, your heart to actually be in the right spot and the right place when you do something, which is much more difficult. We look at this, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus actually magnifies the law. He magnifies and says, look, you can physically not do these things, but you can still do them in your heart. And so it's very easy to do things in, a, in some ways, you know, fake. You know, you know, it, even, let's just think about all kinds of stuff. You know, whether it be the, the, the Sabbath day, obviously that's one thing that's physical in some ways because we physically don't, don't rest. But, you know, forgiving someone. And you can verbally say, I forgive you, it's okay. But really in your heart, you still have... You know, animosity for whatever happened for someone wronging you. It's much more difficult to, you know, uh, in your heart to actually intent-wise to, to follow through with what you physically do. But Jesus, when we exchange yokes with him and his yoke, his burden, uh, or it's, it's not that the, the burden's lighter in the sense that he doesn't require as much of us. He requires more, but he requires a heart, as I just mentioned. But he bears the brunt of the yoke for us, of the burden. He's not just bearing it with us, but he's strengthening us, strengthening us as we go through this life. Jesus doesn't say, hey, look, I want you to follow me and do all the things, and I'm not going to do anything to help you do the things I'm asking you to do. Jesus is saying, I'm going to bear the brunt of this for you. I'm going to be with you. 
And he did that literally by living this life and being at the auspices or at the, the, the mercy of all the things that we were at the mercy of or, or at all the things that we are at the mercy of today, the, the temptations, uh, you know, the different things that come in this life, sadness, sorrow, all those things, all those emotions that we feel that make this life difficult. He experienced himself. He showed us the way. So right here, the picture is clear. Jesus is asking for the people to come to him, the true revealer of God, not the religious leaders, who do what they do out of pride. Who point their finger and say, do this and do that, but really, on the inside, they're looking for loopholes to get out from actually doing these things that they're asking people to do themselves. Jesus and Christianity is distinct in all the religions of the world because we have a God that has chosen to lead us not just by instruction, but by example. So that is something that we can all be very, very thankful for. So in closing, we must remember that we must come to God with both a humble heart and an understanding that we need Him. We must realize that trusting in God is what will produce the character that God wants in us. And out of this trust and faith springs true repentance and obedience from the heart. I mean, true trust in God is an act of humility in itself because it is basically us saying, literally, we're not enough. We're not sufficient. We need help. We need help. We also need to realize that it is not only through, Je- that it is only through Jesus that we can come to God. We all know this. Unfortunately, some do not know this. Some think that there's other ways. And I think subconsciously, I think sometimes we can almost convince ourselves that, again, because we're human and we're susceptible to that human condition of pride, that we sometimes can figure things out. The way to the Father is through Jesus and Him alone. Nothing that we can do of ourselves will bring us salvation. As we look to the heart of the biblical message, we see that from the Garden of Eden that God has begun this plan to bring humanity back to the rest at the very beginning. That rest, that, you know, as some people call it, paradise lost, that rest that was lost. As God made the heaven and the earth in six days, God blessed the seventh day and made it a perpetual rest. But humanity reject the rest through Adam and Eve, and I'm speaking metaphorical right now. That rest that God provided Adam and Eve, the first humans, Humanity rejected it. All were present with Adam and Eve at that time, in a way. We've all kind of been affected and had that, you know, that human nature about us. We've, you know, we've rejected the rest that God provided us. But God has a plan through his son. Jesus brings with him a way to get back to that rest that God provided in the beginning. This gives us a deeper understanding and appreciation, I think, of the Sabbath day. Because it is basically a proclamation of, obviously, the future. A proclamation of that rest that Jesus, God, through Jesus, is bringing back to this world. And the way. As we rest on the seventh day from the toils of this world, we see that it pictures the true rest we have in eternity through the humble and meek Lord Jesus Christ. Let us come to Jesus continually to learn from him. He promised us rest, so let's rejoice in what he gave us.